If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Alex Pearson. They don't care about the people. They don't care about the communities. They don't care about keeping the subway safe. They just want to go out there and cause havoc in our communities. Instead, the federal government has continued to resist common sense changes to keep people safe. You have the whole country screaming, we need to make changes, and they're dilly-dallying along. Like there's no urgency. There's no urgency because none of their families have ever been affected. They haven't seen the safety. They're protected behind the, the big golden gates of parliament. That's unacceptable. When it comes to bail reform, what exactly is the Trudeau government waiting for? And a good morning to you, Alex Pearson, with you on this Tuesday, March 4th. It is uh, great. We are back in... Uh, indoors and uh, back in our studios so it is a uh, back to kind of normal certainly like being out in the field you get a good sense of what's going on it's going to be one of those very very busy days it's going to be one of those days that unfolds um, and it'll kind of build we got uh, all eyes on manhattan of course donald trump will walk into a manhattan courtroom this afternoon he'll become the first president arraigned on criminal charges it is a historical first, and it will be the start of a gong show that uh, the get Democrats will own, and, and it will not get rid of Trump as his critics uh, hope. It is uh, just guaranteeing almost that he sticks around. He's already raised five million bucks off this, and he is like 30 points out in front of his uh, other rival, uh, Ron DeSantis. So if you think he's going to go away, this ain't the way to do it. But we'll, we'll talk about it later. He's not going to be cuffed or anything. He will not make a public entrance, um, but we'll, we'll keep an eye on that because it is a big story. So as you know, we were live um, out at City Hall on Monday. As uh, Now we have 28 mayoral hopefuls. That's all. 28. 28 people signing up to take the top job, all of them laying out their vision to clean up the city. No question about it. Every single one of them, you know, that we talked to, whether it was Anna Bailao, whether it was Brad Bradford, whether it was Mark Saunders, whether it was Josh Matlow, they all agree crime and safety are top issues. The fact that we're broke doesn't help because we can't do a lot of stuff that we need to right away. But those are the top issues. And, you know, they, they all admit that we can't do this alone because a lot of the issues that we're dealing with fall into provincial and federal jurisdiction. You know, mental health is a provincial issue. It requires, uh, you know, the city to either get funding from the, the province for, for proper supports or it requires the province to you know, go back and, and open up beds that were closed across this province when a lot of our big psychiatric wards were um, closed. You know, a lot of people who actually need help and cannot be out in public, um, you know, were then pushed out of these hospitals and now they're all in public. 
But real, but but on the issue of bail reform, you know, and ending the stupid catch and release program that just keeps letting all these dangerous offenders out of jail, that is federal jurisdiction under the criminal code. And they are really in no rush to undo what they did. And this is despite, remember, all the provincial and territorial premiers writing the Trudeau government a letter and demanding this. And the provinces and the territories never agree on anything. Like, it, this is unanimous. It's not debatable. We see it play out on our TVs and every single day of violence in cities across this country that are dealing with this. So it's not just a Toronto issue. This is happening all over the place. It's just we kind of take the brunt of it. Yet David Lametti was thinking about it. You know, he's got to think about this. And so Premier Ford is rightfully getting angry. And he's not alone. Because you heard, you know, he's getting support from the NDP who stood up in question period Monday and uh, united with Doug Ford saying, look, we have a problem and that's enough. And when the NDP join into something like this, normally who would support these kinds of everyone get along, let's try to help each other, kumbaya, they, they, they realize we have a problem. The system's not working. And so that says something. You know, Ford made clear these delays, the utter lack of urgency is getting people killed. And that includes certainly 16-year-old Gabriel Magalhaes, who, you know, we've learned a lot about his accused killer. You know, we know that he was in and out of jail on dozens of charges and convictions for violent crimes. And the Toronto Star just reports the latest finding, because, you know, you have to go through all these court documents, which sometimes they take a long time to find. But, you know, seven months before Gabriel was killed, there was a judge in one of the many, 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 many appearances that Jordan O'Brien Tobin made, who said out and out, look, this person is a threat to the public if he does not get help for his mental health and addiction issues. And ultimately, he was released on this conviction of an assault charge, this one involving the attacking of someone with a box cutter. And the condition of him getting out was, you got to get help. You got to get help. And clearly, he did not, and now we've got a teenaged boy dead. But Doug Ford also directed his anger to the judges and demanded, you know, don't go by what the, the feds are demanding. Use your own common sense to make your decisions. The people of Ontario are frustrated by the failures of Canada's justice system. And even without bail reform, these judges have an opportunity to keep them in jail a lot longer than what they have been. Yes, we need bail reform, but you don't need bail reform if you're a judge. You want to keep them in a little longer. But they're buckling and they're opening the door and letting them back out on the streets and crossing their fingers that maybe Maybe little Johnny, after committing a heinous crime, will be a good little Johnny. No, that doesn't cut it. They need to go to jail. There you go. The bottom line is, yeah, the judges should use your own, their own discretion. They don't like being told by the lawmakers how to do their job. We've seen that happen too often in our courts. They just like to go around and make their own rules. But, yeah, you got to decide what you're going to do. And if that person's too dangerous, maybe we just shouldn't assume that they're going to get the help. But that is the benefit of doubt criminal system we now have. And um, the premiers were told by Lametti that they'd be moving quickly to change the bail thing, you know, the bail reforms that they put in, which was to give all these offenders the benefit of the doubt, even if dangerous. 
this whole catch and release model, they insisted, was the better way, and it has been absolutely a disaster. It's been a disaster. The premier, of course, they all want this thing called a reverse onus system, which should be the only system we have, but it would require offenders to prove why they should be let out. Like if you've got a rap sheet longer than my arm with a bunch of violent crimes, maybe you should have to prove to the courts why you should get out. You know, it's a kind of a novel concept. Prove to us, prove to the bench, you won't hurt someone despite all your violence. Why should you be given 18th, uh, the 18th chance? You know, this is not hard. This has public support right across the country. Not just from Canadians, but all the premiers. This is not hard for the Trudeau government to do, but, you know, this is a government that was so completely determined to undo and destroy any and all of Harper's tough-on-crime measures. And so I guess this would be an admission that they screwed up, and they've been wrong, and they have been wrong. But bail reform is only one side of this issue. The premier does not have to wait to make changes, and he should not be waiting when it comes to, you know, reversing some of the decades-long decisions that saw, you know, most of our psychiatric hospitals shut down. Ford knows that we've only got 2,500 spots to serve a population of 15 million. So it's his jurisdiction to make sure that mental health help is available, and we are long overdue to bring back what never should have been closed to begin with, because it is not hard to see. There are some, some people, and sadly, these some people cannot live free in public. They just can't be safe to themselves or society at large. And because we don't have these hospitals anymore and beds for them, they, they just, hey, go to the subway and go to bed there. Let's hope that nothing happens. Good luck. So if the Trudeau government wants to drag its feet on bail reforms, there's nothing stopping Ford and his majority government from reviving these hospitals, you know, repurpose them. You know, put those who are too dangerous to be free in them, but make available resources for addiction issues. Those who can't help, you know, find the help to get clean because it's so expensive. And, and put those services there. Get them off the streets. Get them clean. You know, Trudeau's government doesn't see all this violence as a priority. I, I don't know how. They've got, uh, you know, the, the former police chief in their cabinet. You've got a finance and a safety minister who live in Toronto. They know what's going on here. And... The GTA and Toronto are all Liberal MPs. Do they not care that their communities are telling them to do something? They know full well what's going on. They just don't seem to care. This past month, March of 2023, the Daily Bread Food Bank saw 270,000 client visits. That is the most ever recorded in our history. And for context, let me tell you where we were before the pandemic. We saw about 65,000 clients every single month, and then the pandemic hit us, and we saw some 120,000. And subsequently, with inflation, that number has more than doubled. 270,000 client visits. Just crazy, just crazy. And it's not getting uh, any easier. You know, we're about a week away from hearing t if Tiff Macklem's going to raise uh, interest rates again. I don't know if he can at this point. I mean, if inflation is coming down, the problem is it doesn't lower the cost of things like food. It doesn't lower the costs of essentials. Like, it doesn't work like that. It takes a very long time. We've even, we haven't even seen the worst of the interest rates because if you talk to economists, they'll tell you, look, there's a 
there's like almost like a 10 to 11 month drag on it. So you get that first hit, but we really won't start to see the effects of all this cost of living until around late August, September. And, and so things are going to get much worse. But when you hear these numbers, when the food bank in just March, 270,000 people, you're like that's not, that's not sustainable given the number of people that they serve. I mean, you look at this. They used to spend $1.5 million a year on food, a year. They're now spending $1.8 million a month, which is insanity. I want to bring Neil Hetherington into this. He is the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank. I thank you so much, Neil, for, uh, for joining us. Just sad that you have to do so. Good morning. Yeah, you're, you're entirely right. And in, in your setup, every stat that you had was right, and your assessment, bang on. You have been there now long enough to understand that what you're seeing now is a much different picture than when you would have started uh, with the food bank. So kind of characterize this, because I think when we talk about these issues, when we talk of dollars of cents of cost of living, we forget that there are people in those numbers, that there are families, that there are people that are business people or, or just struggling families, or maybe they're people who live on the streets, but it's the face of the story that often gets forgotten. Well, after the press conference, uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of Paul, uh, an entrepreneur, uh, was talking about uh, just how difficult it was to get by. So there's somebody who's working full out. Um, we know that uh, um, individuals whose primary source of income is full-time employment has risen. It's more than doubled. It went from about uh, 13% to 33% of food bank clients. And so that the myth, or unfortunately now the myth, that mm. if you sort of work hard, get that, uh, mm. get that position, uh, you'll be fine, is, uh, is no longer the story for too many uh, clients. And, um, you know, 50% of food bank clients have a post-secondary education. They did everything right. Yeah. And still they can't make ends meet with, uh, with the way that affordable housing is and, um, and the lack of income security that people on disability have. And that's what we called on the government to do today. We're, we're saying, listen, it's an emergency when it comes to food escalation, food prices. Every one of the people who are listening right now is feeling it when they go to, uh, to the grocery store. Sure. And <clears throat> this acute shock of, of, uh, of food inflation, disproportionate to inflation as a, as a whole, is having a um, pretty significant effect. It's about $50 per person, it was, now that number might have, have escalated, but it was about $50 per person per month that you are spending. Now, if you're on a fixed income, if you're on disability, mm -hmm. you're already underwater. And, yeah. uh, and that means that you're turning to uh, the Daily Bread Food Bank and uh, food charity. It takes a lot for someone to go to the food bank. It's not like they get up and go, great, I can get to the food bank now. I mean, some people feel such shame uh, to go that they either don't go until they're absolutely desperate or, or they just go and hang their head in shame, which they shouldn't have to do, but they shouldn't even have to go, uh, especially when we're talking students, we're talking people uh, who have full-time jobs. Those, like, We should not be in a society where those who have full-time jobs have an education. They can't afford food. And so who are you seeing? Are you seeing full families? Are you seeing people who oh, yeah. think they can turn it around like or they've sold off everything and they're coming to you now like who are these people 
Yeah, it, it, it often is a last resort for uh, for individuals. Um, and as I said, 35 percent, uh, sorry, 33 percent uh, yeah. have full time employment. Um, but then you think about the, those who don't have the opportunity to work. So, the, so um, they are on full time disability. They receive about twelve hundred and twenty nine dollars a month to survive on. Mm. So I don't mm. care how good an accountant you are or or how. Yeah. Uh, excellent you are at managing your household expenses. You can't survive on 1229. So we legislate that if you are unable to work, you must live in poverty by $900 per month below the poverty line uh, every single month, $900 uh, below the poverty line. And so our call today was to say, hey, for those on disability, at least do a top up so they can afford their groceries. And that's what we called on um, on the province to do. But let me be very clear. It's not just the province. It's all three levels of government that have failed. Yeah, 100%. And maybe it is time that we look at a food stamp program or something because it's not getting fixed. And the concern is we're only talking about Toronto. There are so many jurisdictions outside of Toronto that I would hazard to say are probably even, maybe even worse. But the the need is there. It's not sustainable. There's no way you can tell me that you can keep spending a a million eight per month on food. Um, So... Yeah, it would make sense that maybe those in charge would kind of get that this crisis, because you have warned about it before, and get together and figure this out. Because then it tends to be, Neil, with government, that they react when it's too late. It's just going to be too late. Right. And that's, so we have been, uh, we've been providing, you know, we're, we're, we're an amazing charity, I think. And yeah. we have been providing uh, the reality, the statistics, the research reports to governments for decades. Um, and um, and we've always done it in a a kind way, I would say, to mm-hmm. all levels of government. And we've said, okay, we're going to keep on working as hard as we can. We're going to meet the need right now. But today was the first time, Alec, and you you, you know, you know, just I think you know me. I think you know mm-hmm. uh, the, the Daily Bread. We 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 have never been sort of controversial. We've never made demands of government. We've simply quietly gone on in the background. But today was different. Today was, come on, 270,000 up from 60,000. This is an absolute crisis. And so please, um, you know, listen to us and stop it. Not, by the way, we don't get government money and we're not asking for government money. Mm -hmm. What we're asking for is that government fulfill their obligations to make sure there is an economy that allows people to thrive. Yeah. And look, uh, I didn't even know you could yell. So that's what I know about you. But I think we're often too nice. And we do give them and organizations like you give them every benefit of the doubt, whether it's on this or whether it's on crime or any other issue. And then it gets to a point where you just can't be nice anymore. And I think people have to start making a lot more noise or they won't act. And and so I think there are a lot of things that they could do, even if it's just like we just had a budget. And, and did they give anything to, to the food banks or shelter anything? No, they didn't give anything. That was our opportunity, or did they? Nothing. And, 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 and so we did make those calls. We did provide budget submissions. We have laid out what the social policies are that need to be in place, as well as the impact. So if you implement this policy, here's what's going to happen. So we did all the homework for them. Mm-hmm. Now, but again, it's not just the provincial budget. There are issues when it comes to uh, to both the city and, and the uh, federal government. And I was in uh, Ottawa last uh, week articulating as best as I could the situation that we're currently in and the path forward to be able to assist uh, government to change the situation.
Yeah, it needs a complete overhaul, and I don't think you can do it at separate levels. I think they all have to sit down and come up with a comprehensive mm -hmm. plan, not just a fix ODSP, which is just odious, and all these other programs. But there's a way to do it if there's a will, and, and that's a sad thing. Mm -hmm. I know my listeners, I know our listeners, you know, they're generous. And so what what is the greatest need right now that you have, other than needing money? But what's the greatest need that you guys have as far as uh, what you need? Yeah, you know, often when I'm asked that question, I always say, if you wouldn't mind donating food or funds, um, it would be appreciated. It is still appreciated, but I'm going to make a very specific call. Um, we have a call to action uh, uh, portion of our website at dailybread.ca. I'm asking that people visit that website and, mm -hmm. and make that call. Send an email to any elected official. It doesn't matter which yeah. level of government. Send a letter and just say, hey, heard what's happening with the food banks. You have a poverty reduction strategy. Come on, implement it um, so that the, the, nobody needs to turn to food charity. And are the, the grocers stepping up? I know, like, you go to Lava's, you can buy a bag of that. But are they stepping up? Because they could do a lot here. They throw a lot of stuff out. Well, um, we, we do have partnerships with uh, each yeah. of the major uh, uh, groceries. Um, we, uh, we will continuously extend to them an opportunity to step up. Alrighty, so when are we going to see or start seeing the results of whether or not our use of private care is helping ease gridlock and delays in surgical care? It would be nice if it were soon because we had record times for surgery before the pandemic and then it got worse during COVID. You look at the numbers as of uh, November 2022, there were 2.9 million Canadians waiting on lists for surgeries. And when you look at data from secondstreet.org, which tallied government numbers across this country, shows as of December 2022, 13,500 Canadians died waiting on surgical wait lists, which have gone up now by 24%. And then you look at numbers from the start of 2023, we have a half a million Canadians now stuck in surgical backlogs, which puts us last on a list of 11 comparable healthcare systems when it comes to giving timely care. We are failing. Let me bring in Yannick Labrie, senior fellow over at the Fraser Institute, a health economist and public policy consultant, and the, the author of the study that uh, got all these numbers. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. We knew the problem was building for a while. When, uh, when should we start to see the results? And I'll, I'll focus on Ontario, but when should we start to see numbers drop, given we are already bringing in for-profit care, to, or for not-for-profit not care to, to help with this? Yeah, well, it's, it's a tough question. Uh, I, I don't know, but I hope it's quite soon. We, we have to realize that, you know, we're, as you mentioned, we're trailing behind other developed nations. When it comes to to waiting uh, waiting times, uh, um, we're trailing behind as well in terms of availability of, of resources. We, we spend a lot of money, public money on on healthcare, and what with, with poor results. Uh, and, and we have to acknowledge first those problems, and we have to to look into what other countries have done to turn the tide. And basically, this is what we did. Uh, with the study that we just released today, uh, personally, I looked at other European countries with universal health care uh, uh, just to, 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 you know, to, to bring evidence 
uh, to bring you know proposals uh, to to change uh, the way we we look at healthcare. We, we tend to think that you know the only model that we we have is right next to our borders, uh, and it's not the U.S. Uh, if we look at uh, Europe, we we uh, we see um, systems where patients have more options. They have more choices when it comes to deciding where to get their treatment, and it works. Uh, obviously, you have to have some conditions uh, for for this to work. Uh, we have to have access to information about uh, how providers perform in our ecosystem mm-hmm. system because we it's related. We have a, yeah. a, a lack of access, but we do have a lack of access not only to to healthcare, to information about our healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, look, we just hand out the money and the funding to the hospitals with no questions asked. I think a big part of that is if we actually demanded performance and if you're meeting the levels, okay, you get more money. But we don't do that in this uh, you know, country. But is there a province that you found that is a worst offender when, you know, on this particular area? And is there a particular surgery that gets kind of a, a, a bigger wait list than others? Well, there are uh, a couple uh, in Quebec, for instance, that the, the backlog is quite uh, large. Uh, it, there's some progress. In the recent months, we, we, we see that there's been a couple of partnerships signed with uh, private providers in order to you know, increase capacity, uh, like I said, give more, uh, more options uh, to, to patients. Uh, but still, uh, there's a long way to go to uh, to, to clear the backlog. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say, so so are the changes that we've made, when you see what, let's say, the province of Ontario does, when Doug Ford has brought yep. in these for-profit uh, centers that do things like hip replacement and all the things that make sense, like the eye cataract surgeries and that, is this smoke and mirrors, or, or is what they're doing actually going to make a tangible change? Yeah, well, it, it's early to... To claim that you know uh, we we can't say right now that uh, uh, there are results uh, positive results uh, from from those changes, but uh, it's it's somehow encouraging to to see that it's it's the way we should look at it. You know, and there's a lot of debate in Canada about the the role of private providers and then private care overall and we tend to think that if we rely on private providers people are going to have to pay out of pocket to to get access to care which is not the case this is not the point and we want to uh to remain within a a, a, a mostly publicly funded healthcare system where everyone has access to care without having to you know uh, pay out of pocket the fact is that we have to uh, to see the, the private sector as an ally, not a threat. And this is quite often the case in public debate uh, in Canada. Well, that's because it's political, and, and the politicians love to score points off of this. And because they do that, they have absolutely kind of polarized the whole issue. You know, just now, are we able to have these conversations about looking at different systems and how we could bulk up our universal care system? But my concern, Yannick, is that, you know, we've done some things to make it look like they're doing something in Ontario, but are they doing what we actually need them to do um, or, or are they going to continue to buckle to the political pressure of not actually making the changes that are needed uh, to fix what is very badly broken? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you're raising a good point. You have, like I mentioned earlier, you have to have conditions. Okay, well, a lack of transparency, we've talked about it. It's a problem. We need Mm. to be able to see how providers perform and compare them and, and use that information to make choices. Money, public money should follow the patients. Whether you, you choose to sure. go to a private provider or public hospital, it needs to be linked to, to uh, you know, the, the choice made by the, I mean, the funding needs to follow the patient. And this is obvious. And this is where uh, we should go. Uh, other, other countries have done that. A couple of decades ago, I'd say, it's not even years ago, it's decades ago, and we're still lagging be, behind. Uh, and, and with competition, we tend to think that competition is on, only good in other uh, sectors of our economy, which is not the case. With competition comes a pressure to remain efficient, comes a pressure to offer good quality care, or to, to attract patients. Otherwise, you're going to have to, you know, uh, problems uh, in terms of revenue. So it's yeah. those we, we need to change the incentives in our system. Basically, that's what I'm saying right now. Well, we need to change the conversation. If, if Canadians are okay with 13,500 people that could live a very healthy life, if they're good with those people dying, waiting for things that they're told they can get in a universal care, then mm-hmm. I guess we, we know where people stand because the numbers and the data is there. So yeah, uh, we, we'll stay tuned to the slow crawl of our bureaucracies. Appreciate the time on this. My pleasure.